On Tuesday, September 13th, the Bureau of Labor Statistics released the August 2022 inflation numbers. Compared to both July and the year before, those numbers were again up, not down. And in the case of the monthly change, precisely opposite of what the markets had been expecting. Uh-oh, big market drop. In fact, that was the single largest drop in the markets since mid-2020. How bad were those inflation numbers? How large was that drop? Do they portend potentially a larger recession sometime in 2023? And depending on how you answer that question, how should you potentially position your portfolio to succeed? Stay tuned as we discuss all this and more right now on the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Welcome. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show with Roshan Lungani, Eric Olson, and Adrian Nicholson. This show is an exploration of ideas to help you work toward your ideal retirement. Get ready for the financial independence of your dreams. Welcome to the Retirement Lifestyle Show. I'm your co-host, Roshan Lungani. We've got the whole gang together. It feels like it's been a while. Adrian Nicholson and Eric Olson are with us today so we've got all three welcome welcome back we got a full team i'm very excited yeah it's true i had a conversation with one of my clients yesterday who's listening regularly to what we're doing here and he said man it's lately you guys have always had somebody missing i i so you know get the band back together it is nice to have us all especially on what we're discussing today we need as many minds as possible we've got what is, uh, I don't want to call it a great topic because I think it'll be an interesting one. I don't want to call it great because it was just such a bad day yesterday in the market. So we are recording this on uh, Wednesday the 14th. I'm giving you the specific date because the day before, Tuesday the 13th, was the worst day in the market since 2020 with the S&P and the Dow being down around 4%, the NASDAQ down around 5 and Eric, Adrian, and I are going to give each other big hugs and console each other during this recording, I guess, to, to make us feel better. Uh, what we're going to do is break down what happened, talk about where we think things are headed, what you can do about it. So we've got a lot of information today. Hopefully it's, it's helpful and gets you to walk away from the ledge, so to speak. Eric, you do such a great job of pulling the data and uh, the different charts out there. Well, we appreciate that you've done that for us today. I was thinking you could you could just start us off. Okay, well, why don't I just start with, we all, I, I suppose, noticed that yesterday was a tough day in the markets, as you just said. I mean, a really tough day in the markets. And the interesting thing about it was it came as such a surprise for so many people. It had been, for the several days beforehand, we'd been getting this uh, rise off the bottom. It seemed as though perhaps the market had found a footing, wasn't getting back near the June lows. And maybe we were starting to see some hope and optimism coming back into the markets. And in fact, part of that was people were all jazzed up about the inflation numbers that would be released on the 13th of September. Those that would be the inflation numbers for August would probably come in lower and everyone was starting to feel the mojo. In fact, the White House had a big celebration on the White House lawn celebrating with James Taylor out there singing, uh, celebrating the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh-oh. Then, <laughs> then the Bureau of Labor Statistics comes through 
and offers a, a report about just what had happened in the month of August, both versus the prior month, so one month changes, but also then year-on-year -year changes. And so some of those numbers came in as follows. Instead of being the, the number coming in for August actually lower, that prices across the board were slightly lower than in the month of July, they were one-tenth of a percent higher. Oh, sad face. Everyone's now starting to feel, wait a second, we got this wrong. How did we get this so wrong? And it was in response to that that the, that the market really started to say, maybe we should reassess a number of things here. Let's reassess, first of all, what's actually happening out there with prices. And then secondly, let's reassess what we thought might be a, a diminishingly um, aggressive response on the part of the Federal Reserve to continue to raise interest rates to stamp out inflation. Well, I just want to make one important point uh, about the surprise factor. This was the same, not exactly the same, very similar using Twain's quote, history may not repeat itself, but it rhymes. I think I, I think I butchered it a little bit. But this is what happened between May and June. If you remember, the report comes out in, I believe it was April's report. And then we had all these company, uh, these investment firms saying, we're peak inflation, we've hit peak inflation, markets start recovering. And then in June, you've got the report that came out for May's inflation, and that was higher. And then the markets had a huge pullback and actually went to its what what so far are its lows of the year. So then you fast forward to August, mid-August, when we're getting July's report, and we had a one-tenth of a percent improvement. And so then the market started rallying on that. Then there was there were two things that was speed bumps along the way. The first was uh, Fed comes out and Powell, after their Jackson Hole meeting in late August, said, we don't want one data point, we want a trend. Uh, and that started the markets to pull back. It, it, it sort of pulled back, started a recovery, then we get this inflation report. So, uh, and when I look, when I, when I think about these things, forget June for a moment, but when you, when Powell says we want a trend, that's not really new information, right? That's what they, they're not gonna change their actions on a one-time data point. So, but the markets reacted negatively. And then with August numbers uh, coming out now, and it not being a trend, I you know it's I'm not um, I, I guess what I what I'm saying is this was not completely out of nowhere. It, it wasn't a new story. We've seen this uh, to a certain degree before. Although I'd have to go back to look. I, I actually don't have to go back because all the reports were saying you know, worst day since June 2020. So we know that the react the single day reaction back in June was nowhere near as bad as today. Mm -hmm. And or seeing yesterday. headlines like that are. Very scary for investors seeing a worst day going back since 2020. But this is what our jobs are. And as investors, what we have to do, where if you're seeing a big down day, if you're seeing your investments go down, you really have to just not look at the number, but just see why. What are the what's going into this? What's being baked into this? And a big thing yesterday, what people were talking about, just expectations were hit pretty hard. Again, why people are looking towards this important inflation number. So really looking at the layers and the data and why this is happening can really help you with just your decision making and how you really take on this kind of these news and these headlines because there's a lot of them and just being able to navigate your way through it 
can really pay off in the long run. So it was definitely a really tough day, but just kind of looking at all the things that go into it can paint a really clear picture for investors. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share my screen. So if you're listening only, just follow along. We'll try to use um, you know enough words here so that we're painting the picture that our YouTube audience will be seeing. But um, what I'm going to do here is to just go ahead and share this um, share this graph or table, I should say, with uh, some of these numbers in it. So what you're seeing here is just, uh, this is the actual bulletin that was released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics yesterday. And what you're seeing is, is that the, the headline number for what's called the Consumer Price Index for All Urban Consumers, this is the one that includes you know, the whole kit and caboodle, uh, including food and energy, that number was up 8.3% on a 12-month on a basis before being adjusted for seasonal factors. And the biggest contributors to that increase were shelter, food, and medical care indices. On the other hand, one of the things that for most people would note notably is they've been going to the gas station and they've been seeing that prices on gasoline have come down. And that, those were down for the month by 10.6%. So when you take the number, the 8.3 number, and you peel out food and energy, what you get in there is a all items less food and energy. When you take out all items less food and energy, what you wind up with is a 6.3% month or year-on-year increase. And so th- that at the, at the largest level is what, uh, in terms of the composition of what's taking place here, is, is the uh, essential story. We're seeing food and energy prices on a trailing one-year basis having done a lot to drive this inflation. But now we're seeing gas prices starting to come down, and that should relieve some of that pressure. Yeah, and you know, with the food and energy, what stood out to me was, one, just the amount was so big double-digit increase, and two, biggest increase since 1979, right? That's huge. Now, Eric, when you mentioned the numbers excluding food and energy, that's more the core CPI, and that's typically what the Fed is using, right, to drive their their uh, inflation factors down. So it does, they do offset that volatility. They use the core because it it's, it's smoother. There's less volatility there, which also, speaking to food, says that maybe it's the volatility, maybe it can pull back, it'll, it'll pull back quicker potentially. I'm not necessarily arguing that. I'm, I'm just sort of thinking out loud that if they pull it out and they don't use it because the volatility is high, and I'm, I guess I'm hoping that it pulls back just because for the economy that would be huge, right? Yes, really, really true. And, and so <clears throat> when we talk about the difference between the, the index that includes food and energy being up 8.3 year on year, and but the index that does not include them being up 6.3%. Let's talk about those individual elements. You mentioned food or the food index up the most since 1979. It was up 11.4% year on year. And energy was up 23.8% year on year. So to have, especially on the energy side, a dramatic reduction in the month of August is is obviously directionally um, also when we're talking about the real composition of households, real spending, that's fantastic to see. So 
now, I, so how exactly did the markets respond is a topic that I, I think is also important. Can I share some uh, screenshots here as well? Please yeah, do. of course, Eric. Okay. So in this case, then, we're going to take a look at a couple charts in here or a number of charts, and let me just uh, go down through some of these. Um, what I want to show here is yesterday, this is a layout of essentially um, 10, 11,000 some stocks that are tracked by one of the services that I um, use for data source as a data source. It's gurufocus.com. If you haven't seen that, go, they've got some very um, affordable data plans that you might want to might access. But this is a, what we call a histogram of the, of the uh, declines or gains per, uh, for all stocks in this pool that's measured. Uh, again, around 11,500 or something in that neighborhood. And what you see is that the median, the median stock declined by 2.99%. As well, it's, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of about 85% of all stocks declined. Maybe it was even closer to about 90% of all stocks declined, but somewhere in that neighborhood. That in terms of compares to where we are for the year to date where the median decline for all stocks, including yesterday's essentially 3% decline, is a minus 16. So that's a big share of the minus 16 year-to-date number, 3% at a median level in one day. But when we break it down further and then we look inside the sectors, what we see yesterday, whoa, the consumer cyclical category, that's the things you don't need but you want. That was down 4.44% as opposed to, let's say, consumer uh, staples or what could be called consumer defensive, still down, but down 3% as a whole. And the, and the S&P 500 in total was down 4.32%. Financial services down a point and a half. Compare that for the year to date, including yesterday's move. And what you see is energy-related stocks are up 34% for the year. Utilities are up 5% for the year. Financial services are down only 5% for the year and so forth. Whereas healthcare down almost 40% for the year. So I'll show some of the individual movements yesterday. The, one of the measures of fear is called the VIX. And the VIX yesterday was up 14% in the one day which is it hasn't gotten to the same uh, elevated levels that it was at at various points along the way in the last year, but that is a fairly big one-day move for the VIX. When we look at some of these other charts, then this is the S&P 500 over the last year, as we said, uh, down in, in more than 4% on a price basis. We have here uh, the NASDAQ down 5.5%. We have the Dow Jones uh, Industrial Average down almost 4%. We have small caps down close 3.8%. And the story just continues. International, 3.5%. Emerging markets, 3.1%. Now, some things that were actually moving in the opposite direction were the U.S. dollar against a basket of international currencies. The dollar is actually strengthening in all of this. And in this case, yesterday, the dollar against those other currencies was up almost 1.4 percent to which it's just been it's just been rising so quickly over the last year. You also think about well, how monitoring some of the what we will call the fear trade type things. One of those is gold. 
Gold actually wasn't up yesterday. Gold took part in the downward move. It was down 1.3%. And now here's one that I thought was interesting. Roshan, you pointed out that uh, long-dated U.S. Treasuries, more than 20 years, those long-dated U.S. Treasuries have been having a really terrible 12 months, and particularly since early December of last year. But yesterday, in the midst of all of this, they were actually up a quarter of a percent, which I, I found fascinating. So on that basis, we, you know, we see just at different levels how the market has responded. Um, it is, some things make sense. Some things in there don't really make as much sense to me. Well, let's actually start there with what doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me that treasury bonds are up. You'd think that when in this, in light of the number coming in and everyone fearing, well, stocks, everyone fearing that the Federal Reserve will respond with more aggressive interest rates for a longer period of time, that that would lead in, since prices of, of bonds and interest rates on bonds move inversely, that the Federal Reserve that's more committed to larger rate increases for longer would have bond investors thinking, hmm, I, I, these are probably, these have more down, downward movement left in them on a price basis. But instead, it reacts the opposite way. Yeah, so, and um, this is with the, tre- the 20-year treasury uh, that we, we're discussing, and I, I monitor that one very closely. And for a couple reasons, one is I do use it as a hedge. Now it hasn't been a good hedge this year. It's down, uh, I believe it's down around twenty-five percent uh, this year. But the other thing with the with why is it down? It's down because the uh, Fed's raising raising rates, and they're going to continue. And I I believe that's why you're you're seeing the unexpected relationship. Uh, so it's already down twenty-five percent, and I believe it's priced in a uh, it had already priced in a uh, 75 basis point rate hike this month, and I think the report doesn't change that. What I think the report did change is I believe the market was hoping that the Fed would start slowing the rate hikes, and they were hoping for a 50 uh, basis point hike. So when I look at it through that lens, uh, it actually makes sense that stocks went down as much as they had because the reason they had gone up was the hope that the Fed was going to start slowing rate hikes in September. And that would also make sense as to why the treasuries were up, not down, or at least they were kind of flat right on the day. It's because, well, hey, that's already priced into the treasuries. Now, I can't prove this. This is opinion, not fact. But that's why... I believe those moves make sense and weren't as surprising. The final point I'll add, and this wouldn't necessarily affect that as much, but it could, is that if you're selling stocks, where's the money going, right? And typically when you sell stocks, uh, the money goes to cash, treasuries, that type of thing. If you want safety, the, and you're, the flock to safety trade, so to speak, is going into treasuries. So that could be another... Uh, another argument for that. Uh, the reason I don't think that's as strong a case is I think we would have seen the treasuries move more in the positive direction if that was the case. Mm-hmm. And you can also see it just putting the focus on uh, stocks as well. If interest rates are going up too, it could cause people to kind of change what kind of equities they're in, where if you're in these growth stocks that 
you know, have really high PE ratios, you not you might not be that comfortable if this if you have a particular company that's really focused on easy, cheap money and that's being pulled out of the system right now, you might look at other areas in the market that maybe have a stronger balance sheet, have a lot more money coming into the door. So you're really having to diversify within asset classes and really look at what exposure you have because this also plays into different sectors. Some sectors are more prone to changes in interest rates than others. So you really have to look at your portfolio as a whole and just see because, again, like you mentioned, Roshan, you have certain hedges put in place and certain things that over time have done really well in down markets and they're not doing that right now. You have to kind of reevaluate it, just making sure the components of the portfolio are doing what you need to do when there's a lot of volatility in the market. So just diversification and looking at the roles that investments play in your portfolio are more important than ever. Yeah, you definitely need to look at what's out there. What's interesting too is uh, just what I saw as far as media coverage yesterday, uh, sort of new articles out and so on. A lot of them were were decidedly bearish, and uh, and um, uh, but a lot of them were referencing what I'd call older um, older stories. So, like one of them that stands out was there was a story about. Um, uh, Grantham, uh, Jeremy Grantham, and him, him saying this whole Super Bowl case in the market's going to continue to go down, but all the information they were using was some stuff that's been released earlier this summer. So I wonder if that is a sort of part of creating the feedback loop, you know, uh, that markets are down, what, you know, what's going on, and I'm going to read something, and I'm seeing everything about the markets being down and predicting them going down further. Uh, I, I don't know that you can do anything about that. It might just be my own my own experience yesterday with what I was seeing out there, but that's that's something else that that I wonder uh, helps drive extremes and market moves. Yeah, and it's also been interesting to look at some of the technical levels as well, because that's something investors are really going to monitor. Are we going to break down below certain levels? Are we going to retest new lows? Looking at those indicators are as well are extremely important after the sell-off yesterday, just to see if that could be any indication of what's going to happen moving forward. So one of the things that's of interest to me uh, is to think about, okay, well, what, what should our outlook be longer than just this week or next week? Uh, if, if it's all right with you, I want to share with you another graph that we've referenced in previous episodes. This has to do with the, with the spread between the 10-year treasury bond and both on the one hand, the two-year treasury bond, as well as the three-month treasury bond. Is, it, are, is there more that you want to say about the market response so far? Or can I shift to looking at outlook? All right. So uh, again, for our listener, this is uh, something we'll try to just describe. And for our viewer, uh, you'll, you'll be able to see what I'm talking about here. So this is a graph that's going all the way back into the 70s, tracing the uh, daily movements, essentially, of the uh, spread between the yield on a 10-year treasury bond and, in this case, a two-year treasury bond. So you take the yield of the 10-year, you subtract the yield of the two-year, and you then plot that difference between them. And um, what we have seen over the last again, running back into the 
the 70s, so 40-some years is displayed here. And what we're seeing is that this level has, I would say, in general, been just shy of about an extra percent in yield to a 10-year than you would could than you would normally receive in a two year, although that has sometimes expanded to close to three percent more yield on a ten year. But there have also been periods where, especially back in the late seventies and uh, early eighties, where it's gone just the opposite, and the two year actually was paying two and a half percent more in yield than a ten year was. You might be thinking that's backwards, and it is backwards. And and when when the Shorter dated bonds are paying more interest. What that reflects is essentially a general pessimism about the near term uh, and and a, a outlook that is um, much more relying on the future uh, to be the source of of, of uh, return. And as a result, people bid up those longer dated those longer dated bonds to the point that their yields contract and uh, hence the inverse nature of the, of this relationship. So, but we're seeing right now is, and what we've talked about before is that usually when this um, inverts, we say, meaning it goes below zero, meaning the 10 year pays you less than the two year that has uh, most often been followed by a recession. It's a good early warning signal. And we had gotten down just in within the last month to a point where we were essentially um, at almost a half percent poorer return from a 10-year than you could receive on a two-year. As of the cl- close of business yesterday, this was, or actually, no, as of the close of business on Monday, this was, um, this was two-tenths of a percent worse for the 10-year than you would receive on the two-year. So now we've talked about this one being this measure of the 10 year versus the two year being a favorite among practitioners, but we also have the one that we've mentioned has a bit more reliability and is a favorite of academics. And what we're seeing in this particular case is that yes, as in the past, this is going back, you know, some uh, back to the early eighties. So we're talking about a 40 year history here. And we can see also when this relationship has gone negative that that's been followed by a recession in most cases. Um, but so far, that has not breached that negative value. We are still actually riding on a positive level here. And so if indeed this academically favored version is more um, reliable as a forward tool for forecasting than the 10 versus 2 year is, then that might inspire some hope and confidence in you, our listener, for the thinking, okay, well, maybe it, it is that the, the six-month or the nine-month or the one-year outlook, I, sh- maybe I perhaps should not be quite so pessimistic about that. Why is that question even important? Because it may shape the decisions that you make now about how to position your portfolio for what you think is around the corner. If you're persuaded that, Wow, we've yes, technically we've met the the very uh, thumbnail definition of a recession insofar as the first two quarters of 2022 we had negative real gross domestic product. But if you're thinking about sort of the, a recession in the more full blown sense of it, where employment is 
unemployment is rising and so forth, uh, then your outlook might be, hmm, I'm not so sure if 2023 is going to bring uh, a definite recession. It's still maybe worth kind of watching and waiting to, to sort that out instead of going in and committing to positions in your portfolio that are bracing for that, um, what you might otherwise think is a near certainty. Gentlemen? Well, I, the only thing I'd point out is what Eric has just done a great job of describing is uh, the inverted yield curve. I don't think you actually use that terminology, Eric, unless I, I missed you saying that. And just because if you're watching other shows, listening to CNBC, reading other reports, they're going to talk about the inverted yield curve. And Eric just did a great job of explaining it. If you think about it um, almost intuitively, I think it makes sense as far as a fear, right? If you're an investor and you're saying, hey, I'm willing to invest my money for two years, but not for 10, right? Which is, which is what would lead to that. You're getting more money for two than for 10 because people are scared to put their money out that far. Uh, or uh, it, 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 if, you, if you do have an inverted yield curve, oftentimes it's used, you know, as, as Eric, I think you mentioned, as a predictor for, uh, for a recession. So, I mean, we definitely want to get back to normal and don't let me put words in your mouth, but what, you, what I believe you said when you went to the three to 10 months is, uh, is yes, it's inverted, but it's not as bad as um, it has been in the past in the times where it's been predictable of a recession. Is that correct? Pretty close. I'm saying insofar as what I consider to be the slightly more accurate of the two yield inversion measures, namely the, the 10 year versus the three month as a, as in my view, a better overall indicator than the 10 year versus the two year. Insofar as yes, the two year is for sure gone inverted. There's no question about it. The, but the 10 year versus the three month that has not gone inverted. So it doesn't seem to me that there's this this unanimity of, of uh, perspective between those two um, yield curves that says, for sure, we're in for uh, trouble in 2023. And we, we talked about this in, in preparing for the show. I think the information is important, so I'll, I'll bring the topic back up. But uh, so technically speaking, uh, we are in a recession, correct, with, with two consecutive quarters of contracting GDP. The one factor when you... If you use... Sorry, yes, go ahead. Finish your thought. Yeah, and Eric was going to say if you use that definition, which is often used but not always, the when you look at the more detailed definition of it, the only thing we seem to be missing is a slowdown in employment. Now, Eric, please please Mm -hmm. continue from there. Oh, no, you just said it right there. That the, the, The shorthand version that we always use is is the two consecutive quarters of negative real GDP growth. But it, in fact, if we, you look at the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is the one that we sort of usually turn to as the go-to source for in, after the fact, declaring whether we were or were not or have or have not yet entered a recession. Hold on, key point. And you look at the search. Eric, I'm sorry, key point. I just, after the fact, what you just said, I just wanted to highlight that before <laughs> you continue because uh, <laughs> what a lot of people don't know is that we find out where we we're in a recession after we've typically recovered or started the recovery to get out of the recession. That's why for, for people that are investing, especially short term, they put such value on predicting where we're going to go. Mm-hmm. But please continue. Hence, no, no, you're, that's a good, excellent, excellent point. That's why the yield curve in the inversion of the yield curve is so closely followed uh, because of its 
um, historic capacity for for signaling things that might be trouble ahead. So we've said before, and I'll just it's worth repeating: every recession over the last how many ever decades, uh, six or seven decades, if I'm not mistaken, has been preceded by a yield curve inversion. Having said that, not every yield curve inversion has been then followed by a recession. So there's, it would be handier for all of us if, if there was a one-for-one one correspondence in, in both directions, but there's not. So that's why it, I, I personally like looking at both of those measures to see if they're confirming each other. And, uh, and in that, on, as you've heard me say in this particular case, I'm not, I'm not persuaded yet that we're for sure headed for the kind of normal, the, the normal problems in the economy that we usually associate with a recession in 2023. I still look at it as we're coming out of a response to the global pandemic. And there were a lot of things that really got messed up in economies and in, in supply chains and in many other aspects of, of how economies normally function. And as a result, it's, it's going to look a little bumpy, but the point that you made, for example, about, unemployment being so low and job offers being so vast and employment growth actually continuing. It just seems like that confounds the story for me. It does. If you look at for sure, the expanded definition of the, of a recession, right? Where you go a little bit deeper than just the, the two slowing quarters, uh, two quarters of economic, you know, GDP slowdown. I think that's part of what makes this market so, so difficult compared to what's happened in the recent years. The other thing that I think really also impacts this market is if, if you go back really to 08, 09, um, the Fed's always been there to sort of save the markets by cutting rates, right? And even getting creative with quantitative easing, which is now sort of a, a term I think most people have heard of, whereas they sort of made it up back in 08, 09, right? So if, in this specific case, the Fed can't be there to rescue the economy because uh, they need to focus on recession. So, uh, um, recession, excuse me, or they inflation. need to focus on inflation. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, th- their first priority has to be uh, curbing inflation and getting us back to you know, their target of 2.5%. Now, what I have not seen change, though, Eric, tell me if you have, and Adrian as well, if you've seen this. They seem to be holding strong to think they'll have it under control by the beginning of 2024. Do you have any reason to doubt that, or have you seen any any of the uh, uh, any any members of the Fed come out and say anything contrary to that? Well, the term that's coming to mind here would is this sort of the opposite of quantitative easing, where it's quantitative tightening? Well, they they are doing that now, uh, but the question I was asking is. They're, they've been saying, yes, inflation is a problem, but we think we'll have it under control by 2024. So they are g- going through quantitative tightening right now. Uh, uh, and they're. And this is where they're trying to reduce their balance sheet, but aren't having that much success at doing it. They're definitely trying to reduce it. I don't know that I'd say they aren't having much success with it, though, right? They have been reducing their balance sheet pretty significantly. I'm trying to see if I can find a, some number some numbers on that to see if anything's anything's changed there but they they definitely have load things you know, reduced while you're tracking rate. that down let me just respond to the earlier question that you posed which was are we noticing the members of the federal reserve committee commenting about the 2024 
uh, 3% inflation question. And I'll be honest, I have not been tracking what individual commissioners have been saying, but I will say that I think there's a bit of a credibility problem now for the Fed because they had been saying, using the language of transitory inflation so um, confidently in early 2021 and running out into the latter part of that year and even into early 2022. Uh, And since now it has been shown that their confidence in that declining inflation was gravely or significantly at least misplaced. I think now those sorts of pronouncements are greeted with, well, we'll see. And the concern I have is that the concern I have is, is that the, the longer that at high inflation persists, the more it becomes embedded as an expectation in the economy. Employers, realize I've got to pay more. Employees demand more wages. Generally speaking, people feel like they have price, they have the capacity to continue to raise prices, and it just gets baked in. Then it becomes, because it's now part of the psychology, even more so than just a function of the underlying economy itself, it becomes harder to eradicate. Here's my, my even greater concern about this, is that the Federal Reserve is going to then say, we're trying to stamp this out and they're going to continue to raise and raise and raise for a period of time. And then I think if it does go into recession, remember I'm a fence sitter on that question. I'm not saying we won't. I'm not also saying, I'm not saying we will, but if we do, then I'm, I fear in, in effect that the federal reserve will back off and start easing again. And I'm not sure that that's the right move. Actually, I'm not even sure that the interest rate manipulation is the right move in the first place. I think it has more to do, honestly, with money supply. And so if they were, they were maintaining a, a tighter control over money supply, that would, be, that would be probably a better path to confronting inflation, even with that psychological element that I described. Yeah, and I don't know... The, the thing that you had said that, I, that, that really stood out to me is I don't, I don't know that I'd say the Fed has lost credibility. They definitely said transitory and changed, their, changed, their, uh, changed what they were saying after. But isn't that, uh, wasn't the, didn't the information provided change, right? Did, didn't, didn't it go from the areas where it looked like it could be supply chain, chain driven to being broader based for one, and for two, even today, the supply chain issues have not been resolved, right? So uh, I, I don't, uh, I, that's the only part I wouldn't, I guess I wouldn't be as, as uh, harsh as you were by saying they've lost credibility, but I, at, at the same time, I'm not going to be a big defender and saying they were wrong and they did change course. I guess I'm just uh, saying that the data, uh, the data changed for them. Well, you know, that's a good point. And so, and I confess that perhaps a lost credibility is too strong a, a word. But you, being as astute about all these underlying causes of the inflation as you are, understand that, hey, well, some things were just outside their control and maybe they missed some of that. And I, I actually, many things, most things are outside their control. I understand that. But I think if you're just the casual observer and you're looking at, hey, you said, but it didn't happen that way. So now you're saying, 
I'm not so sure I should believe that that's going to happen either. True. And I'll tell you another thing, too, that as, as we're discussing this, when you narrow it to that, uh, you know, that's a, that whole transitory conversation was about a year and a half ago. So if you narrow it to that time frame, then, uh, then I think my argument stands. But if you expand further to all the printing that happened, I mean, I, I look back at this and I think um, we should have expected this to a certain degree. I, and when I say all the printing, I'm referring specifically to, uh, to one, what was done to get to support the economy at, uh, through the pandemic, and then going even further, um, as there were signs of us getting out of it and um, the vaccine was available and so on and things were starting to open up and look better, there was a fresh round of, of printing done, right? So with, with uh, lo- looking at it from that perspective, isn't that just economics 101? If you print money, you'll have inflation. And I agree with that. You're, you're raising another point here, which is beyond the Fed, what's taking place at the level of spending at the, at the federal government. So the fiscal side, uh, precisely what you just said, the, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, uh, that's, a, if I'm not mistaken, about a $430 billion spend. Maybe it's a little bit more. It's between four and $500 billion, so half a trillion dollars. Uh, the student loan forgiveness that, uh, that was just um, announced here, that's another half a trillion dollars. So between those two things, does, is that still putting another trillion dollars into the system? It, it doesn't seem to me to be a sensible decision and at least sensibly timed. Um, I, you know, I don't want to get into the politics of either of those two things, but in just terms of looking at purely from the inflationary effect of those kinds of fiscal steps, it doesn't seem me to make sense at all yeah and there's definitely a lot that i think they should have gone with a different name besides inflation reduction act because there's so much data and information out there saying the inflation reduction act will cause inflation right so if if that's if that's the case it's just someone come up with a better name for one for two if you're the fed you've got to be looking at this policy and saying are you serious? You know, we're, we're trying to cut down <laughs> on inflation and you're putting more money out there. So it, it is, uh, uh, it does, it, it could to a certain degree be uh, counter to what's going on right now. But I, I also, from a political side, see if you're, if you're for the act, uh, you had to get it in now because you couldn't risk losing uh, in the midterms and not being able to get anything, anything through. Uh, I, I question the timing of this, just like I question the timing of, of um, uh, I believe that was uh, March or April of 2021, where they're like, yep, let's give uh, everyone another round of money, even though things look like they're heading up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. Uh, well, just your sense, it doesn't make sense to be calling it the Inflation Reduction Act. They're engaged in a very vigorous process of rebranding. So the, the act is what it's called, and so you can't really change the formal name. But in terms of now discussing it, no one's calling it the Inflation Reduction Act any longer. At least its proponents are not. It's it's now called the Climate Bill. So it it suddenly uh, it's it suddenly had a new uh, new spin. Here, just po- politics. Yeah, so yeah. Well, I, I guess at least they're coming up with better branding <laughs> than, than, than before. But it's, <laughs> in my mind, it's still it's it, I, I I don't think I'll ever forget that it's it's called the Inflation Reduction Act, and and I saw article after article i'm actually looking at one now that says inflation anti-inflationary act question mark is the title 
Uh, and so they're, they're essentially saying it's an inflationary act that they're calling the inflation reduction. It's just uh, I saw so many of those. And when you when you read through it to the data, you're like, OK, so how am I spending more money but lowering inflation? And I, and I understand what they were going for, because what they were going for is they've got all this clean energy stuff in there. And they're saying, well, at this point, you know, fuel prices are what are, are, are the thought at the time. Fuel prices are what what's driving, uh, driving everything going up. Well, if we do this clean energy and we lower uh, prices at the pump, then we'll we'll be anti uh, anti inflation or we'll be reducing inflation. But you know, maybe they should have talked to the Fed first and realized, well, they use core CPI because of the volatility in gas prices before they went with that name. Lovely. So how do people, what should people do in response to all of this? So we're, we're talking about the sudden reversal and the, the vicissitudes of uh, inflationary data re- being reported by the Bureau of Labor Statistics each month. And, and now the market reacting this way one day and that way another, how should people be responding well, to I, all I want this? to, Tell both of you what I'm thinking, and I want you to please tell me why I'm wrong. I'm doing research, and I just, here's what I can't get past. I think this is a very good, very good long-term opportunity. So the key, key phrase there first is long-term, because you're able to buy good, good companies. And, I, and I'm not using the general term if you look at, hey, stocks are on sale. Yes, ag- agreed on that, but I'm going to go further. You're able to find companies or buy companies that are growing internally double digits plus, uh, and you're able to buy them in many cases at very low, on a historical basis, PE ratios. So to me, I think that if you're, if you're, you've got a long-term perspective, I don't know where inflation is going to go. I don't know what the market's going to go tomorrow, but what I feel where, where I do feel some confidence is that if I'm buying a company that's growing at 15% a year, Yes, their stock is down, so I'm able to buy their stock cheaper now than I was able to buy it before. But even though the stock is down whatever percent this year, in some cases you're finding these companies at 30, 40, 60 percent down this year, right? So if I can buy this stock at a single digit PE ratio that's growing at double digits a year, and I'm willing to buy and hold for the long term, um, I see that as an opportunity. And why I'm asking you to challenge it is because I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, this seems so obvious. What am I missing that I, that I, that I, like, what is it out there that I'm missing? Because this seems like such a good opportunity. So I'm asking both of you, am I, am I, can I not see the forest from the trees or am I just so excited because this is the best opportunity in my mind since 08, 09 that my exuberance has gotten me missing something. So please uh, respond to that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I really like your thesis, especially from an investor standpoint. Um, I guess the only thing I could just add on to that are just looking at multiple companies across multiple different sectors and then looking at their sizes, whether they're large, medium, small, because uh, like you said, there are a lot of deals out there. Maybe if you're finding a lot of deals in a particular sector or all with the same, let's just say, market cap, same size, then you might not be as diversified as possible. So maybe over the long term, too, that could be a, just a, or on a short-term basis, that could be a significant risk where it'll be pretty painful on the long way there. But overall, though, I really like the thesis where, you know, there has been a significant decrease in a lot of these companies that, you know, they have a good outlook. They have a lot of money coming into the door. They have good, like, stock buyback programs or good dividends. 
there's definitely opportunity there. What do you think? Yeah, Eric? And, and Adrian, to respond to that, I'm uh, to respond to what you said. I'm seeing it across sectors, across market caps, across styles as well. You know, growth versus value. I, I, I I'm seeing, uh, I'm seeing these opportunities, and it's really I'm trying to devote as much time as possible to digging deeper uh, in analysis of these companies, just because there's so many out there, right? Whereas, as I was said earlier, I haven't seen this. Uh, type of opportunity since 0809. Yeah. So first of all, I I fully agree with one aspect of your argument, which is that if given the choice between buying some of those companies in November of 2021 versus buying those companies in September of 2022, they are much more favorably priced in many cases now than they were in in November or December. So that's un, that's inarguable. And especially if you do careful stock selection and find those incredible bargains for, for super high quality companies that have, there's a, there's a really strong argument for their, as we were talking about in a recent episode, their sustainable competitive advantage, then yes, I would say this is a good time to be hunting. Well, Eric, and I'm I will not, mention. name any specific names, but I just wanted to make the point. I'm not comparing to to just uh, last year. Like, there's one company that that I just researched and bought that it's at that's at its lowest PE ratio since um, uh, 2015, and it had a big dip in 2014. If, if I take out the the 2014 dip, it's it's literally at its lowest PE ratio since they've gone public. Right. So that's where I'm seeing the opportunity. Not so that's why at the beginning I said I'm not just saying they're cheaper than a year ago. They're cheaper from a valuation perspective in some cases than they've ever been in in, you know, in seven, eight, ten years, in some cases oh eight. You know, it's just that's what that's what I'm looking at. Another point I'd I'd want to make is when you're going through a market decline like this and uh you hear the the regular things of hey, it always comes back, the markets go down, then they always come back. Um where do you feel comfort in holding, right? Is it, and, and, and part of it is, for me at least, if I own companies that I know are still growing every year and I've, I've analyzed them, I think that's going to continue and I've got a long-term time horizon, then I can sleep easy at night feeling like this is just the, the market's gonna do what it does, but the company I own is worth you know, 15% more at the end of 2022 than it was at the beginning, and it'll be worth 15% more, assuming that it continues at that rate. So I can just wait. Whereas when it's just the market as a whole, I find, and this may be only only myself, I find that things like the Fed policy and so on that concern me more than with this stock that I'm like, well, they're still growing. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm reading their quarterly call transcripts. I'm reading their annual or annual reports and nothing's changed and they're still continuing to grow. I don't see that changing in the near term. I can just hold and be patient. Yes, I, I definitely would agree with that aspect of your, mar of your argument. And so let me extend it then from November and December and say, yes, on a selected company basis, it's not merely the price comparison. It's also the valuation comparison. And what you've done there is you've shifted it from price to valuation, which of course I, I fully agree with. 
I will say though that if we look at the market as a whole, it, it what I'm about to say isn't to conflict with what you've just said. It's to just accentuate that the selection process, it seems to me, is more essential now than it was, given the comparison that you made to 2008, than it was in 2008. In 2008, in 2009, and now uh, our ditter listener, we, I just apologize, we're going to get into a little bit into the weeds here. If you were to use, we've talked about this ratio in the past, what the what it would cost a, someone who could write a big enough check to buy every stock in the U.S. stock market, in the Wilshire Total Market Index, what, si- what check they'd have to write for that, and then compare that to the size of the U.S. economy as measured by gross domestic product in that same year. In 2008, at the bottoming process of late 2008, early 2009, the check you'd write for the entire stock market would have been a little like about $9 trillion, eight or $9 trillion, where at a point in time where the U.S. economy was about $14, $15 trillion, more or less, more or less, you could write a check for 50% of the size of the U.S. economy would buy all the stocks in the U.S., in the Wilshire total market. Today, today, that ratio is, you'd have to pay three times as much in a, in a ratio, in ratio terms, three times as much. Now that's better than last November, December when it was four times as much. So you could say, wow, three times as much instead of four times as much, that's a bargain, but it is still the, it's still the case that um, today, rather than being able to buy it for 50% of the size of the economy, you'd have to pay 160% of the U.S. economy. And on that basis, I would say that means that just being, rather than being able to just blindly say, any, if this is a great time for buying stocks as an in index form, I would say it's much more to your point, Roshan, that this is, this is potentially a great time for buying stocks for which you've done really careful homework and can, can select out those, those stocks. And to further reinforce that point, I'll just note that we are right now, the spread between gross stocks and value stocks is about as great as it's been in, well, I, I believe it's as great as it's been in at least two decades. So from that standpoint, careful selection of really attractively priced stocks is I think a superior approach than just being an index owner right now. Yeah. And, and the, Thoughts the about ratio that. you're talking about, uh, just to start, that's the total market cap to GDP ratio, correct? For the, for the U.S. And, and that does still indicate overvaluation of the overall market, which as you said, it, it, it looks like we're shifting into potentially a stock pickers market, as they call it, right, where you can you can find those, and we will see potentially that conversion uh, between between growth and value. But yeah, that's that's a, a very good very good point um, from what I said earlier of seeing the opportunity at the individual stock level. But yes, the, the there is an argument for hey, well, these indexes can still go go down. I'd want to look into that a little bit further just to see. Um, uh, how long it's been since because even during the 08 09 if i remember correctly we did not get into a territory where it was 
where it was um, uh, considered significantly undervalued, but I, I could be mistaken. I'd want to dig into that. I like that like that point though, Eric. I appreciate it. Anything else on challenging my thesis of the of the opportunity available? Adrian said, make sure you're diversified across sectors and style. I definitely see that. And then Eric, you mentioned um, uh, just the stock market versus individual stocks. What else are you, do you think or what else do you see? Well, actually, one other thing I'm going to say is further reinforcing your point. So I, I this isn't to promote it. It's just to report it. I've, as I've said in the past, I run a number of um, algorithmic quantitative driven strategies and the large cap value strategy. This is prior to, you know, the the outcomes yesterday because I didn't measure it uh, since at the close of business yesterday. But prior to yesterday, the, for the year, that strategy was down 5.1%, not the 13 or 14 that the market as a whole was down. And um, what does that signify? That signifies that finding stocks that are deeply undervalued means they they may, it's not necessarily certain that they will, but high quality stocks that are undervalued, they have they have a margin of safety, just to go back to the, the concept uh, that Benjamin Graham introduced once upon a time. So I, in that sense, I want to reinforce your point that picking, being very careful about what you own can help a lot. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. What else, if anything, are you seeing as steps you can take as an investor right now? So I know not all of our clients are and our listeners are inclined to say, hey, then I'm going to jump in and do some careful stock picking. Some of them are just at this stage. Um, we're so emotionally disrupted by all that's been happening and this sustained downturn, both on the stock and on the bond side, has put them in a position where it's just like, please, please stop the bleeding. And so as a result, for those clients, they're thinking, well, maybe I should just go to cash. I would say, if first of all, I would I just would discourage you from doing that. That is a a common pattern that we as humans, a common response that we as humans often have to difficulty is to, re, to retract or to you know pull away the fear response. But it has not been historically rewarded in the long run to do that. So, but if you are saying, Eric, I don't care what the historical long run is. I'm not, this isn't a, I'm not thinking this through. I'm feeling this through and I am, so disrupted, you know, I'm losing sleep, then I would say, well, rather than cash, then you might want to think about doing some other sorts of uh, approaches. And I'll just offer out a couple of ideas. So one is, since we've been talking about treasuries, we've been talking about the movement of treasuries from an index standpoint, but you can insulate yourself from a downturn by owning owning treasuries and holding them to maturity. So if you purchase them and then hold them to maturity, the combination, especially if you buy them fresh, your your yield to that maturity point will be a positive yield. And it'll be greater than what cash is offering right now. So don't don't put yourself in a position where you're just running to zero and then and staying there on an indefinite basis. Maybe have a three or four 
month position on a rolling basis for some portion of your portfolio that uh, is refreshing and you're just clipping coupon, if you will, in this sense, from owning those treasuries on this rolling basis until such a time as your emotions have stabilized and you're able to think it through again as opposed to merely feel it through. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. We've talked about having rules and rules-based adjustments. So uh, I, I think that you have to, if, if you're one, I like what you said about avoid doing that because it has, has not proven um, to be successful uh, for most people. But then going further, if you are going to take that step, make sure you have rules for here's when I get out and here's when I get in that are not emotion driven. Because if you focus on your emotions, there have been so many studies on behavioral finance and just the way the human brain works. Your, your mind is trying to protect you. from your, your brain is wired to protect you from bad things. And when things are going down, that feels bad. When they're going up, it feels good. So if you pull out when they're going down, you're probably going to pull out. Uh, you're probably going to get back in at a higher price than when you got out, is what I'm getting at. So just be very careful of that. You also, actually to that point, Eric, uh, these decisions don't have to be binary, right? You don't have to say, I'm all in or all out. You can make gradual adjustments, which in general is probably a good uh, a good move as well. I think we covered the topic at, at length. There are definitely more opportunities and ideas. As Eric said uh, earlier, we do have strategies. He, one he had mentioned that's doing very well in this market environment, and we're there to help. So if you need help, please reach out to us. Uh, we'll be back next week with another great episode of the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Please like, subscribe, give us five stars. Send the link to your friends and family. Visit the website, retirementlifestyleshow.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with you next week. Schedule a conversation with Roshan, Adrian, or Eric today at retirementlifestyleshow.com. Roshan and Eric are certified financial planner practitioners. They, along with Adrian, are investment advisor representatives and serve clients across the U.S. with financial planning and investment advice through RTA Wealth. If you found this show helpful, gain knowledge, or enjoy the time you spent with us, tell your friends and leave us a five-star review. This will help others discover the show. To access our show notes, to download any of the tools mentioned in today's podcast, to ask us a question, or to schedule a conversation, go to retirementlifestyleshow.com. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and guests are solely their own. While based on information they believe is reliable, neither Arate Wealth nor its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, nor do their opinions reflect the opinion of Arate Wealth. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be regarded as specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. The show hosts offer investment advice through Arate Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor and securities through RTA Wealth Management, LLC, member FEMRA, SIPC, and NFA. Finally, our music is The Chance by Jason Shaw and Audionautics. It's part of the YouTube Audio Library and it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. I am Ray Voices. Thank you for listening.